Welcome to the Product Design Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Coolen, founder of UX Cabin, where we create world-class web and mobile apps. I'm excited to bring you a behind-the-scenes look into the lives of some of the most interesting and talented people in product design. We'll get strategic advice on how they got to where they are today and things they wish they would have known earlier in their career. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of the Product Design Podcast. Today, we have Jerry Miller. He's a senior staff experience architect at GE Aviation. And we're going to be talking today a little bit about enterprise design and UX. So, Jeremy, why don't you give us a little background on who you are and what you do and all that good stuff. Awesome, man. Well, first, I want to say thanks for having me. I'm really excited. I've been listening for a while. And I'm super stoked to be on here. It's kind of exciting. I feel very honored. Many other <laughs> awesome uh, guests that you've had. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah. So like you said, my name is Jeremy. I'm an experienced architect at uh, GE Aviation. I've started out at GE I think about like six years ago. And uh, we can talk a little bit about this when we get into like the big, big giant companies. But I've actually bounced around at GE quite a bit. So I worked for a bunch of different businesses, power, digital for a while, now aviation, which is really cool. Kind of moved my way up, starting out as like kind of just you know, UX designer all the way up to now where I'm at. So that's pretty cool. We can get a little bit into that in a little bit, but uh, yeah, so I'm originally from New Orleans. I moved up to the Cincinnati area in 2020-ish. So what's funny, we actually live in Kentucky, so we didn't quite make it over the river to Ohio. So I'm still technically in the South. I couldn't quite make the jump to the Midwest. Wow. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're hanging out in uh, right across the river from Cincinnati. So it's, it's really cool. Yeah, I got a wife, two kids. My wife's also in software, so that's pretty cool. And uh, two little kids keep me, keep me occupied. So, you know, four and a six year old. So it's like, if I'm not working, I'm doing that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Chasing them a, around. <laughs> I have a four year old and a one year old. So it's, oh, uh, yeah. you know, that still in that it. really uh, condenses your, your work time to, you know, oh, man. only the essential work can get done. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure we'll get into this in a little bit, but working for a big company versus agency and, and the hustle and the, you know, of the, the agency life, it's gonna, It's definitely nice working that nine to five and not working nights and weekends anymore right. with all the kids stuff going on. But yeah. Right. Uh, so that's me. Yeah. So I'm a experienced architect and I'm a mentor on ADP list. That's something else I think is, is pretty sweet. If you are listening and you haven't checked out ADP list yet, uh, make sure you go check it out. Awesome, awesome designers on there to, to talk to and I wish I had that service when I was coming up years and years and years ago. So, for, you know, for those who are listening who might not be aware of ADP list, why don't you give us a little like high level overview of what it is and what you can do on there? Yeah. So it's basically like an ad hoc mentor session that you can sign up. Uh, guy Felix Lee started it. So I want to give him a shout out for sure. Cause this is like such an amazing thing that he came up with, but his, his mission is to try to democratize mentoring and, and make mentoring available for all. So it's totally free. I think you can like tip some mentors if they, if you want, I don't, I don't have that set up, but I think some mentors do to kind of help them out a little bit, but it's totally free and you can go online, schedule any amount of time, depends on what the mentor wants to do. They might have 30, 45 minutes, hour, maybe longer, depends, but you can search based on, you know, location and you can find people, different roles, different companies. So it's just an amazing way to just spend some time talking to people to get their thoughts on the industry, portfolio review, whiteboard design challenge help, just career pathing, 
all kinds of stuff. So it's, it's just an amazing service, man. It's just like so cool. It's, it's like, you don't feel bad because they already signed up and obviously they want to talk to people. They didn't <laughs> sign up. So it's not like you're just messaging random people on LinkedIn. So it kind of lowers the, the pressure, I think, from those, those mentees who are maybe nervous otherwise of reaching out to people more senior. So I think that it's a great service. Such a fantastic service. A, I've heard so many of our guests talk about it and either benefiting yeah. from it or being people who, you know, offer their, their support and mentoring on there. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're on Twitter or LinkedIn, I think we all kind of see some of the big name celebrity designers out there mm-hmm. and you try to maybe reach out to them or whatever, ask for help. Probably not going to get a ton of help or response, but there's so many good, valuable yeah. people on ADP list that can lend a helping yeah. hand. Like you said, they're already there. They're available. They want to help. They want to give back in that way. And yeah. that's a fantastic yeah, that's way to find people who could help you in your career. Yeah. You know, you mentioned like big famous people. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Stephen Gates. Do you know who that is? He's mm-hmm. a yeah. podcaster. Yeah. People, if you don't know him out there listening, but he's a, a really, I think, brilliant brilliant designer. He's a he formerly at Weight Watchers or WW has an awesome podcast blogs, all this stuff. He does YouTube content and he's on ADP list too. So, you know, it's it's hard to get him, but you know, he books up super fast, obviously. But if you can get a hold of him, I mean, he'll talk to you you know, hour, 30 minutes, whatever, whatever it is. I actually tried to set up time to talk with him and he was like booked up immediately. I filled up in like a matter of like less than an hour, but mentors is what mentors do, you know? So, um, it's an awesome service. It's really funny. You met so many people from all over the place, man. Like, I've met people, like I had a call last week from a dude with a guy in Lithuania, which I've never talked to anybody about Lithuania before. I've met people in Ukraine, uh, Russia, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Europe, Poland, like crazy South Africa the last week. Like it's just cool. Like the amount of people I've been able to, so to cool. talk to. It's funny you mentioned yeah. Steven, because I was actually talking to him like a month ago and I am trying to get him on the podcast. So Steven, if you by any chance yeah. are listening... Oh, he'd, this he'd is, be awesome, man. Yeah. This is the bat signal. So <laughs> <laughs> I bet he does. Cool. Well, yeah. Well, why don't we dive in a little bit and, and kind of get your background and how you ended up where you are today? What, uh, yeah. what events led you to, to get into, you know, experience design? For sure. So I honestly just fell into it. I had no intention of doing this growing up. And if you would ask me, high school or wherever, what I wanted to be, it would have been, I want to be a musician and a chef. <laughs> you know, like I want to be a chef who plays music or a, a, a musician who cooks. Wow. Uh, and so that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to culinary school. And uh, I actually had applied to and gotten into Nichols State University. So I'm originally from Louisiana. And at the time, Nichols was the only public college with a culinary degree, like a four-year culinary program. Wow. So I was going to do that. And then, of course, everybody in Louisiana was to go to LSU. <laughs> so all my friends went to LSU. And I was like, well, I don't want to go to Nichols by myself. What am I doing? So I ended up going to LSU. And then I was like, well, what the hell am I going to do now? I don't know what I'm going to do. So all my family, you know, they're all like, oh, get your business degree. I was like, I don't, God, I don't want to do that. So, you know, like I said, I was playing music and I was in a bunch of bands and stuff. And uh, somehow, I don't know how, I felt I was the one who designed the flyers. And that eventually led to, well, we need a website. So I started building the websites for the various bands that I was in. And uh, funnily enough, your friends need flyers and they also need websites. And so I started making websites and flyers for my friends' bands for like a hundred bucks or, you know, CD artwork and stuff like that. So I got into design that way. I was making, I don't know, hundred bucks, 200 bucks, six pack of beer doing websites and stuff. And, and about at the same time, I actually met my future wife. 
so my band Tweezer, we were a Weezer cover band. <laughs> we were playing Love a show it. in Baton Rouge <laughs> and I met my wife at the show. So anyway, she was a designer. So she was going to school for graphic design, getting her uh, BFA, Bachelor of Fine Arts at LSU. And they had a really good design program, but I, I had no design classes at all. So, you know, being a musician, drinking all the time, my, my grades were terrible. I couldn't even get into the business school. LSU had an arts and science economics program. So there was a business econo uh, economics program and a separate one for people who couldn't get into the business school. Uh, and this was, <laughs> I guess, like more humanities. So I took like languages and stuff that you didn't need to take in the, the business school. So anyway, I had a terrible GPA, like a one point something. It was awful. All my friends were graduating like 2004, right? I graduated high school in 2000. So all my friends were like graduating. And about that time, Katrina hit 2005, Hurricane Katrina. And I was in Baton Rouge and obviously all my family and stuff were in New Orleans. And uh, I was just like, what am I doing in school? I, this is miserable. And so, you know, if economics taught me one thing, it was <laughs> the sunk cost fallacy. You know, I spent five years going to school. What's the point? I'm not going to use this. Why am I going to, you know, I'm, so I dropped out and moved to New Orleans. And I started playing music in a band with a guy who was an architect and a graphic designer. And he was like, dude, you know, we should start a freelance company. We should start a business. And I was like, oh, dude, that's, I was like, well, you know, I'm making selling websites for a few hundred bucks. He's like, no, dude, we could charge thousands. <laughs> and I was like, thousands, what? Let's do it. All right. So we started Oh My Graphics, OMG, little exclamation, it was cute. And we were selling, you know, websites, thousand bucks, 2000 bucks. We started doing local bands in New Orleans that had more money. And so we started making some money. So I was like, man, I could do this, you know? Well, anyway, eventually he was an architect and he's like, New Orleans is not the place for me. So he moved to Chicago and I was like, well, damn, now what am I going to do? So I kind of, you know, was like, I need to get, I need to get a job. I need to do something. So I started looking around and got a job at a local ad agency down wow. in New Orleans and I didn't have a degree. I just wow. got lucky, man. It was like, you know, looking back on it, I know why they hired me because, <laughs> you know, they weren't doing, it wasn't bad work, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like award-winning stuff by any means, but I did learn a lot of stuff. I learned what I didn't want to do. I learned what I, you know, I, I moved less and less away from print design and more into websites. So I was building a lot of WordPress websites and designing them and things like that. So I, I started to move into that. And then about that same time, I started dating my wife and we start, she was a designer. So like, Hey, let's do this again. So we started making websites and selling them for 3000, 4000, you know, yes. a lot, a lot more money at this point. And we actually started doing that like full time. I was working full time. My wife did that full time. So we made enough money to support her. And I was like, man, we're not making any money. This is getting so hard. Like we were doing all right. But you know, at one point, I don't know if you're familiar with New Orleans Magazine Street, we had like, like two or three blocks of restaurants. Like we were doing their websites, menu design, all that stuff. So it was really cool. And we did, we won some Addies doing that, you know, which is, you know, for a local, little small two, two person agency, we were doing pretty good with the hustle, man. I was like, I can't do this. We wanted to have kids. I was like, I need to get a job. I need to get like a benefits and like, like good money. So I started working at a local agency in New Orleans where my wife actually worked. So she ended up, you know, quitting the, the side hustle because it wasn't making any money. We wanted to have kids. So she got a job at this agency. And I was like, well, I can work there. So anyway, we already worked together. I was like, well, this isn't going to be so bad. So we started working at ad agency and we did that for a little while. And the hustle, man, it was just like, you know, I mean, you, you probably know what it's like, you know, 2 PM call comes in. Oh, we forgot to send this thing to print and it needs to be done by five or we're not going to have it in time for whatever product launch. It's like, you're working late. No question. You right, know, right. it's fine when you don't have kids, but like we were starting to have, you know, we wanted to have kids. And, and eventually I was like, we, my wife did get pregnant. We had we said we had our first kid and I was like, I, I got to do this. I, I, I can't do this anymore. So that's when I started looking at GE. And so GE had a big office in New Orleans. And still at the time, I wasn't really doing like UX design. I was doing more like visual design. 
right? Right. I actually, I, I can't believe I forgot this, but I skipped the whole career piece in there. <laughs> I worked at a startup, like seven people. And that was like the other thing too. It was like the hustle that it was like startup culture, kind of bro-y. I mean, they were cool dudes, but it was just like, you know, I don't know, a lot of drinking and stuff. And I was just like, you know, not that I'm against drinking, but I was like, can we do something else? Right. I want to go out with you every Friday night. Like, I don't want to go out on Tuesday night. I want to go home, you know? And so it was, uh, you know, just diff culture was starting to be a little bit different. And um, again, you know, benefits weren't great. I, you know, I had health insurance, I think. And so anyway, GE uh, had this opportunity, good money, nine to five, you know, big company, opportunity for growth, all that stuff. So I jumped at it like six years or so ago. And uh, that's how I ended up in like big giant company. And, and honestly, man, I haven't looked back. I just like the the big enterprise stuff, the big, big companies, certainly challenging. Sometimes, sometimes it can be super frustrating, but I feel like there's just so many opportunities that outweigh, for me at least personally, outweigh that hustle of, yeah. you know, the, the consultant kind of agency life. That's fascinating. So were you able to get a job at GE without your bachelor's degree? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, they weren't looking, they didn't care. They didn't um, care. I actually, I, I left this out cause it, I, I didn't think it was super important, but I ended up going back to, to Tulane night school and just doing nights and weekends to, to finally get a job. So, uh, or get a degree. So I do have like a bachelor's degree, but okay. you know, it was like night school. I don't, it's not prestigious. Like I right. actually was doing digital design at Tulane and not to, not to like call out Tulane or anything. Cause I think, I think their program has improved quite a bit since then. This was like 2006. I was like teaching the, the, the class on CSS, you know, right, my teacher's right, like, right. I don't know CSS and I'm like teaching people what a selector is and <laughs> you know, all that stuff. And so, you know, so I didn't learn a whole lot. I didn't feel like it really improved my career trajectory at all. I think it like maybe early on helped to kind of like say, I, you know, I, I kind of know what I'm doing, but you know, my portfolio was awful. <laughs> so sure. looking back on it now, everybody you probably cringe at what they were designing 10 or 15 years ago, but absolutely. Um, yeah. So they weren't looking for a degree. And actually for the software teams now, I think at GE and a lot of companies like this, they don't require, it's not even on, you know, for yeah. a software engineer, for UX designer. I think they'll say like, you know, bachelor's degree or relevant experience. You know? Right, 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 right. That's so cool. And then how did you get your like agency jobs? It all is like who, you know? <laughs> yeah. And actually that it was funny that agency job, I applied to that job a couple of times. And once I applied as a graphic designer and I did not get it and they, for whatever reason, and then two years later, I applied for a web developer job and I did get it as a web developer. So I was doing like sort of design, but you know, agency, this agency was a big agency. It was very segmented. It's like, you're a developer, you're a designer, you're not doing both. And we didn't have like that role of like a design technologist or whatever you might call that today. So it was, I was doing more web development, which is fine because I was getting paid and I still was doing like freelance on the side and stuff. Yeah. It was just like extra income. So I got my, I had my creative outlet, but I was doing more web development there. So I did get the role as a web developer, which is funny because I feel like I was a worse web developer than I was a designer, but you know, who knows? It's all, it's all who you know, but I ended up knowing a bunch of people in New Orleans in the scene and all that stuff. And so, you know, New Orleans, it's all like handshakes and, and where you went to high school and who, you know, growing up, you know? So yeah. I ended up getting a job, honestly. That I felt like I had some skill, but it was probably because I knew people. Right. I think there's a lot of people out there listening who want to make a career switch or, mm -hmm. you know, have, have done, they have some skills on their own and they almost feel like they can't do work unless they have mm -hmm. permission from like an employer or an agency or a project. And I think like, yeah, you were doing all this scrappy little work, like making cover art for your, your bands or websites or whatever. And I think 
like if someone is in a position where they are, maybe they have a good job or a steady job and they want to switch. It's like, cool. Like you can do a bunch of this little scrappy work with no one's permission and like build up your portfolio yeah. to, you know, to then make well, yourself super appealable to you know, agencies and kind of get that first absolutely, man. step up. Well, that's the thing. It's a lot easier to do that when you have a job. It's a lot easier yeah. to look for a job, build your portfolio when you're being financed by your current company. Yep. <laughs> right. So if you have a job doing that stuff, you know, take classes, read books, build your portfolio, all those things. And when, you know, the thing is, I, I was actually about to say when, when you're ready, but the thing is, I don't think you're ever ready. Right. You just got to do it. Just put yourself out there. Right. Um, and, you know, it, your, your portfolio is never going to be perfect. Your resume is never going to be perfect. If you try to make it perfect, you're going to be working on it forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Just send it out there. You know, the great right. thing about a website is it's software. It's soft. It's bendable and moldable and malleable. And you can change it. Right. It's not like you're you're manufacturing a thing that will never change. You're put it out there. Add a, add a thing later. You don't need to wait, you know, until you have those things ready. Networking is another good example. You don't need to have a finished portfolio yeah. to network. Just send somebody a message and start talking to them. Like, oh, I'm working on my portfolio. It'll be done in a week or two or be done in a month. But you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait. Just just do it. Just start. You know, I think I heard like right. uh, something on LinkedIn not long ago. It was like, you know, it's better to start now or wait six years. I can't remember exactly what it was. But, but anyway, the, the, I, the theme was start now because six years from now, you'll be six years further down the road if you just waited six years to start or six months to start or whatever, yeah. whatever the meme was. And like you said, it's it's more about who you know and networking than it is yeah. having a, the perfect portfolio or resume. Because like, if you make those connections, you got those those people kind of in your corner or just familiar with you. Yeah. Like you're gonna get a lot further than wowing someone yeah. <clears throat> with your website. Mm-hmm. And if you're starting out, you're probably not gonna wow someone with your website. Yeah. You're going to need something to get you over that that initial hump of portfolio is good enough mm-hmm. and they're a really cool, yeah. good person. Yeah. I think a lot and, of people like junior designers, especially forget that, you know, a resume, a portfolio is one tool to get a job, yep. right? It isn't the only tool to get a job, right? You, you have to, maybe you have to have it. Maybe it's a necessary tool. You can't have a toolbox without a hammer, right? Everybody needs a hammer, but it isn't the only tool, right? It, it, your, your network is another tool. Your, you know, obviously your experience is another tool. Your, your, whatever, you know, you can think of all kinds of things. These are all together help you get a job. It's not just that one thing, the resume per- being perfect won't get you the job, you know, right. it'll help, but it won't get you the job. If you don't have the other things ready, yeah. it won't get you the job. Yeah, totally. Let's dive in a little bit to some of your experience in large corporate yeah. uh, UX. I know a lot of people we've had on the podcast have, have kind of come from the angle of, Maybe they've been in a larger corporation and maybe they're doing stuff on their own or maybe they're agency or startup now. And, you know, they kind of have preferences leaning towards, you know, the agency life or startup life and would be really interested to hear some of the benefits from your perspective of enterprise, large corporation, Mm -hmm. UX career path. Yeah. So I would define enterprise UX as just a, a tool that a company uses buys for their employees to do some work or get some type of work done, right? So enterprise UX, you know, it doesn't have to be a large corporation. A small agency could build a POS system for a restaurant or 
a timekeeping, time tracking software or whatever, right? So you could get an enterprise UX at a small consultancy. There's no reason why you couldn't. But obviously, like generally speaking, a lot of these large corporations, they need so much enterprise UX, they'll hire an internal team to do it because it's a lot cheaper than hiring consultants and, and agencies. So there, th- this idea of enterprise UX, it's not limited to just big corporations. It just tends to be that that's kind of where a lot of that stuff ends up being built. Sure. You know, for me, like enterprise UX, the thing I love about enterprise UX and, and not thinking about large or small companies, but just enterprise UX in general is I just love this idea of helping someone make their day better, right? And I think from a UX perspective, you know, Jared Spool talks about this a lot. Like our job is as UXers should be to make a user's day better. We should be solving a problem and we should be helping them do something, right? I can't think of a better way to do that than with something, a tool that someone is literally using for almost 40 hours a week, right? Right. Like a chat app, Slack, Facebook, you know, maybe some people on it 40 hours a week. They definitely shouldn't be. But most of these little small tools you pick up when you need to order dinner or you, you when you need to get a car, yep. once off things, ad hoc things. But for work, I just think about, you know, somebody going to work, sometimes very stressful environments. Their work is already really hard. They're solving complex problems or they have complex issues to solve or something. The work, the tool that they're using to get that job done shouldn't add to the stress, right? It should be easy. It should be easier at least I'll say. And so what I love about enterprise UX in general is just this idea of making, having just such a huge impact on someone's life. When they go home, I don't want them stressed out because the software didn't work and they had to, you know, they lost all the, all the data they were entering or whatever, and they had to redo everything. Right. So I just, I think like enterprise UX, you just have such a huge chance to make a a huge impact. And I just find that inspiring. Absolutely. And I think the funny thing is the funny dichotomy about like enterprise UX compared to like consumer products, like, you know, DoorDash or something is like the level of like fidelity and user experience Mm -hmm. is tragically lower Mm -hmm. in, you know, Mm -hmm. B2B apps or enterprise solutions. And there's so, 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 so much opportunity to drastically improve it with like small little UX tweaks Mm -hmm. and best practices. I think that's the thing, you know, if you think about internal versus external, that's maybe the hardest thing that we have to, overcome is that idea that, you know, the functional owners, the the stakeholders know the solution already. And all you need to do is make it look pretty or something, right? If they even want you to do that, because sometimes they don't even want you to do that. <laughs> but the value in enterprise UX comes when, when we are able to partner with those stakeholders to solve a problem and become partners in solving it, as opposed to just making a, some concept you know, they drew it in PowerPoint probably and sent you some PowerPoint tag. This is what I want it to look like. Just make it pretty. That's where we don't add value. That's the that's when working for a large corporation becomes really demoralizing. But when you find that team that wants you to help solve problems and they they go off and you get to do research together and you get to talk to customers or stakeholders or users or customers and do all that together when you're actually helping them solve problems, that's when this working for a large corporation really pays off and actually allows you to decrease turnaround time for some manufacturing process or reduce the number of paper or reduce redundancy and processes or something to actually make that operator on the shop floor's life easier. Yeah. I I remember we were working on an enterprise product and we were, we were talking with the person who used this and she had to go in and basically copy out scores to then send to her, mm-hmm. her account reps. 
just so that the organizations would know where they stand on, you know, these tests they had to do. And we're like, how can we, you know, make this easier? What's your workflow? And she was like, well, if you could just like tally it up and then email it to me, and then I could take that and like send it to whoever needs to be sent. She's like, that would be amazing. And we're like, what if we just tally those up and send them out automatically at their own interval to, you know, to the clients. And she was like, right. She's like, you can do that. I was like, you can do anything you want. (laughs) You see what you just said though, is exactly what a lot of large corporation enterprise IT teams will end up just doing the first thing that you said, because someone will go say, what do you want? And they'll say, well, I want you to email me this thing and then I'll forward it. And if you get to go in ahead of time and say, but how might we make your job easier? How might we get the data to the people that need it? The answer might not be you're involved at all. We might be able to skip that process completely so you can go focus on some other really important problem that you have to solve or some other challenge that you need to tackle. And so that's the challenge. That's the thing. It's like, God, we're just sending this thing. Somebody sold us exactly the requirements and I've got this, you know, thing. And, but let, like, let me go help and I can, I can uncover. Maybe we have other ideas that like you didn't even think about, you know? And so that, that to me is like the really challenging part is, is getting, getting to that part and, and influencing those functional teams who are, you know, and this is the other thing too, is like assume good intent. Like it's not that they hate UX designers. It's not that they hate, hate you or think you're dumb. It's they probably are just ignorant of the process. So if you can, you know, show value and, and, and maybe we'll talk about this in a minute or we can talk about it now, but, but the, the way to be effective in these large corporations is to just network. It's just, just like it is outside before you get a job. They need to know what your value is. They need to know how you can help them. They need to know how, how you can work together or what stage you should be involved in. You know, I think often, and this is not just enterprise. This is like a lot of, a lot of different places, but UX designers, especially junior, they'll lament that we don't have a seat at the table. And I get this a lot of times from people, mentor sessions and stuff. And it's like, well, did you ask for a seat at the table? Did you tell someone that you having a seat at the table was important for the design team? And they're like, well, no, we just, you know, it's like, well, you can't expect them to know what the UX team should do. That's not their job. That's your job. Right. And so right. that, that thing right. I think is, is really important, that networking piece and, and, and proving the value is talking through the process. Here's what I expect. Here's how I can help. Here's how I would like to be involved. And if I am involved, here's what I can do for you and how I can improve the value of this thing that we're working on. Yes. I, I saw this hilarious tweet the other day and it was like, it was like the first line. It was like, designers, we want a seat at the table. Or you actually, <laughs> yeah. you know, we want a seat at the table. And then it was like, response, you've been added to seven <laughs> hours of meetings tomorrow. Designer. Yeah. Yeah. Not like not that. But that, you know what? That, it's funny. Um, and, and this is actually how our team is structured at, at GE. And, and again, this is sort of different. Depends on where you go. I mean, the, the, sort of the problem with UX is it's sort of like the Wild West, right? You have no idea what companies do or what they don't do or how, how they function. Um, you know, until you actually get there. So what I'm about to describe could be drastically different for other large corporations. But the way that our teams work is, you know, I'm an experienced architect and my job is to, to do a lot of those meetings. Most of my days are meetings because our product designers need to do work and our interaction designers need to work with the scrum teams to actually build stuff and get it released. So we try to divvy that work up so that the interaction designers can focus on the execution and the tactical piece and someone else can be focusing on the strategic planning, long-term stuff and sitting in a lot of those meetings or doing research or whatever. So, you know, the challenge is like balancing that so that our interaction designers have time to actually create prototypes and wireframes and things like that. Totally. So, you know, it's, it, there are probably totally. are giant corporations that just have the interaction designers do all of it. So, you know, it all depends on the company and how they structure their UX team. 
But that's my experience, at least. And it, it right. works really well because it, it allows someone to go right. deep on something and then share that experience, share that understanding. There's certainly a balance here because I, I do see the value in the people doing the work, understanding a lot of that process. That's important. But then that, that balancing act is, well, how much should you be involved and how much time do you need to do actual work? You know, so how can we get, how might we get you that information right. in a, in an efficient way? So you aren't sitting in meetings all day, but you still understand the depth maybe that I do, or, or at least a, a better understanding than you would, if, you know, I don't know, some other kind of way. So it's a challenge. Totally. No, I think the bigger the meeting, the less you are there oh, yeah. for. And what I mean by that is if there's 30 people in a meeting, you might only need to be there for a 15 minute mm -hmm. segment. Um, yeah. It, and you know, one thing I struggle with, it's like, well, do we just add this person <laughs> to this hour long meeting? Cause they will have relevant info and they might enjoy the context, but we're going to take literally like, uh, 15% of their day away. I've had people say, look, we, we need you to come in for 15 minutes. Just be ready. I'll ping you when we need you or come on at 10, 15 for, you know, 20 minutes as opposed to the whole hour. So that kind of, I've seen that. And, and that, yes. you know, that's a tip, not just for UX designers, that's for anybody out there in a large company, if you don't need them. You know, I always ask, tell my team <laughs> and I ask myself the same question. When you get added to a meeting, ask yourself, are you adding value or are you getting value out of the meeting? And if you're not, just decline it and say, why? You know, I'm declining this because blah, 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 blah. Right. So always ask yourself that. And again, I think this is good for anybody, not just UX designers. But especially in corporate environments, like we have meetings to talk about meetings or we have a meeting. We're going to have a meeting with an executive. So we have to have a meeting to talk about <laughs> stuff we're going to talk about with the executive. And then we might have a meeting to design something for the meeting where we plan and then rehearse and then the meeting for the, with the executive. So it's just that kind of yes. some, some of that stuff. It's like, can we just do this on Slack? Do we really need a meeting? <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes what we'll do is we'll record a meeting and it'll be like, I'll record it. If you need to watch oh, it yeah. afterwards, you can do it at yeah. 2x speed and like save yep. yourself a bunch of time. Like, so... If you were to kind of like put on a T chart, the positives and negatives, or what are the hardest things, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the downsides and the upsides, what, what would be kind of the contrast and compare to like large yeah. corporate work? Absolutely. Well, so, you know, having that agency experience, that small startup experience, and then being able to contrast it, it's funny because I, I work with so many young designers that are just out of school or something. And they're like, they're, they're like, oh, we have to do this and blah, blah, blah. And oh, I hate this. This is so stupid. And I'm like, you have no idea how good you have it. Stop complaining. <laughs> Trust me, this is so much better than it could be. But you know, this is again, my experience, a lot of people might differ with me. <laughs> but when I think about small agency versus large corporation, the hustle piece, the nine, you know, the working late after hours, it's rushed. Also, I think other thing two people don't think about is your, your context switching quite a bit, right? So you might work on a project for a few months, then you yeah. have another project for a few months. It's funny. I was listening to an episode a while back. You had a, can't remember his name, but he was talking about how he was getting burnt out, solving the same problem over and over and over again for different companies. So every company wants the same thing. This is boring to me after a little while. It's like, I don't like this. One of the things that I like about enterprises, there's always a new problem to solve. It's like, we solved that problem last month. Now let's go solve a different problem. The other thing I love about enterprise is, or, or a big company at least, is, is you get to go deep, right? If you're working internally, at least you get to go deep. So it's like, yep. like I worked at G Aviation for last few years and I was working on an application building shop floor, a digitizing the shop floor process. So if you think about a jet engine, it's a lot like a car every, every so often that needs to be taken off the wing and we have to go send it for overhaul, overhaul or inspection or whatever. A lot of that stuff is all paper, right? 
you print out a sheet of paper and you literally sign your name and you have a stamp. That's like your unique ID. <laughs> so everyone has their own stamp and no one's two stamps are like, and I stamp it. And that's my security. I, I approve this, this step. All that was paper. So what we were doing was digitizing that wow. and saying, if we were to build a, a digital solution for this, what would it look like? Right. And I got to go to the shops. I got to go talk to inspectors. I got to see them doing work. I got to see these giant machines up close and all that stuff. And, and because I was with GE, I got to go to these shops with no problem at all. You know, I show them my badge. Oh, you're GE. Come on in. Some of the people that were international, they couldn't go into certain areas because it was like export control data stuff, like for some of the military things. But being an American citizen, being able to go to these shops, I could do that. I got to go to Hungary. We had some shops outside of Budapest. I ha- I didn't get to go, but I had teams that went to Singapore, Brazil. We got shops in Cincinnati, McAllen, Texas, all over the world. Dubai, Saudi Arabia. We have stuff all over the place. And so, you know, being able to do that, that's something that I don't really think you could do as a consultant, right? Maybe you could, maybe if you find the right customer, they're willing to pay for all that research and all that travel. But, you know, that's the other thing too, is the budgets, the money, right? The money, my software team at work, my org, not the team I'm working on with this specific product, but the org itself is a thousand people. And that's just software engineers and UX designers. That's a huge team. That's a lot of money that people are willing to spend to do stuff, right? So when I think about budgets, it's not just travel. It could be software, it could be laptops, but training is huge. You know, one of the things that GE offers, and this is something a lot of other big companies do, like I know Siemens and Mitsubishi, Disney, a lot of these companies, they have training that like you can actually go to like offsite. So like GE has a place called Crotonville and it's like a hotel, man. It's like a training facility. You got dinner, you know, lunch, there's a bar you can go hang out after. And, and the idea is to get you out of your normal and picking kids up. You don't have to worry about making dinner. You don't have to worry about answering your emails and you're there to focus on training. So like leadership training is, is a big thing. I think it's like a, just on its own. That's valuable that I don't know how you would get that any other way. So that kind of stuff, the money, the budgets, I think is, is, is really unique. Obviously the, the, the hardest yeah. part was software. And as I say this all the time. But software is generally relatively straightforward. You type in some code and you get what you typed in, right? You type it correctly. It does the thing and you get the software. The hard part with software is the people, right? The hard part with software is the people. And so the larger the corporation, the more people. (laughs) So I think that is where it becomes really hard. You don't have one person that knows everything. You have a bunch of little people who know little bits of it and together they understand the whole, but like you got to connect the dots and you know who to talk to and you have to know how to navigate that structure. And for a lot of people, you know, I've heard, oh, there's so much politics. That's a lot of crap. There's politics at a startup. There's politics with four people. There's politics with two people. It's just, there's more of it and it's more complex. (laughs) So that's, I think the hardest part is navigating. (laughs) We talked a little bit before about getting to know these people and doing these things. That to me is the hardest part. Obviously structure, you know, GE aviation, having to deal with government regulations. There's a lot of security. We get hacked by China and Russia, like all the time. So that kind of stuff, or try to hack rather, they try to hack us. Our security team is very good. But, you know, we get reports all the time that like, you know, watch out this thing is we had reports that somebody's going to try to do this. So watch out for this. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, little small agency, you probably never have to worry about security, but there's a lot of security. So we don't get to use Miro, right? Right. Because Miro has to like be approved by the, the, the security team. And it's like all that stuff. So we're kind of stuck. We don't use Figma. So we're using sketch. And, and part of that, the reason is all that data is on someone else's server, right? We don't own it in house. So, so there's those weird things that you would never even really think about. And there's a huge security concern there. 
So there's a lot of complexities when it comes to things like that. But like I said, I've all, we never build the same problem twice or solve the same solution twice. We're always working on something new. We solve that one thing and it's on to the next thing. So I think that's really cool. You know, and then also too, like big corporations tend to tend to have like more notoriety, I think. So like, no, it's not Amazon or Facebook, but GE Aviation is a big company. Siemens, Mitsubishi, these other big manufacturing companies are are also like pretty well known, 3M and stuff. So I think those those names do go a long way, even though they might not be as sexy as like sure. Facebook or Apple or Meta or whatever. You know? Yeah. 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 What type of person kind of I, I, ideally fits in these larger corporation? Yeah, like what are person. their very patient part. patient? Yeah, so, you know, this is another thing, a guy, uh, I wish I could remember his name, but when you, you talked to him a few, a while back, um, that was, you know, he's like, Oh, it's so slow and no things fast. And no, it's, you don't get immediate gratification for stuff. You know, what's funny is when I came from the agency world and started working at GE, People yeah. are like, and I think the other guy, he mentioned the same thing too. We're in a meeting, like, when can you have this thing? I'm like, I can have it by Wednesday. And they're like, we don't need it for six months. Why are you, you're going to send it to me Wednesday. I'm going to forget. Don't send it to me Wednesday. You know, I actually used to do that. I had a guy yes. pull me to the side and he's like, listen, dude, stop. Just, this is, you're making everybody look bad. We don't need this stuff this fast. We give it to them. They're not going to do anything with it. It's just going <laughs> to fall through the cracks if you send it to them too soon. So just like, let's wait, like, let's follow the process. I'm like, all right. So everything's very process driven. And I tell my team all the time, you know, it's a, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Like trying to get stakeholders to change their opinion. You've got to do it over time. You can't expect this thing to happen overnight. So, you know, a very patient person, I think is the biggest thing. I also think someone who's like willing to put themselves out there and, and meet people. I think that's something that's really important, especially now with my team, we do a hybrid, but we also hire remote. So, uh, you know, going forward, a lot of teams are going to be remote first probably. And so, you know, if you, no one ever sees you and no one ever hears from you, it's, it's impossible to move up in a, in a company. Right. And I think like, again, it goes back to networking. Networking is important for yeah. a job, but at a large yeah. corporation, networking is important to get promoted and it's important to find another role. You know, th- that was another benefit I mentioned, but my company is so big. I could do anything. I don't have to quit if I don't like my team or I don't like the thing I'm working on. I could go and work on enterprise. I could work for the military team. I could work on supply chain. I could go and do all these other things. I don't have to you know, stay on this one role if for some reason, some stakeholders just driving me nuts and I can't stand them. Um, so I mean, but you know, that's impossible if you don't go and network and right. meet those people in those other roles, you know, there's a, a coffee chat is a good example. This is something I do, uh, at my team. Uh, and I think this is like something, even smaller companies, if you're working work at a place like 50 people and you're remote, this is huge. But what we do, my buddy, Derek, we have a podcast together. And so we work, I think we just have like this kind of, we, we jive together. He actually works at GE as well. And so we do this thing, we call it makers on teams, getting, drinking coffee, right? Cause we have teams. We don't use Slack because, of, you know, because of corporate America. So anyway, makers on teams drinking coffee. <laughs> and so we just, our goal is to like meet right. everyone in our organization. It's, it's funny. We've got a thousand people. We're like, oh, this is going to take us like six years to do. But our goal is to like go and just find people and just talk with them for 30 minutes, like interview them kind of podcast style, make a video out of it and post it on Yammer. Again, corporate America, we use Yammer. And so we just interview like nothing about work. So what, what's about you? We ask some silly questions and, and Derek at the end writes a song about the conversation and he sings a song at the end about them. And we posted to Yammer. It's just like a way to meet people and get introduced to all these other people that we would never meet, you know, people in India, for instance. And we have a large team in India and Poland and stuff like that. So that's the kind of stuff that like, you got to be able to put yourself out there and meet people that way. And there's a lot of, a lot you can learn from these other people. And there's a, there's a like opportunities for networking are huge. 
You know, I think that's the thing. It's like when these small companies, a lot of them, their internal roles that are posted, you're not going to go in Indeed and find them. You have to know that these roles are even available to, to you know, move up and you could might right. be able to get a promotion faster that way if you can apply for these internal roles and and get them. So the only way you'd know about them is if you knew the right people. Yeah, I think it's super mm-hmm. tricky, like in a remote environment to yeah. make space for like randomly meeting people because it's like, in an office yeah. environment, you see yeah. people, it's like, oh, this person always has to come by and get copies or talk to this person. And you kind of get familiar with them. And then you start talking about sports Absolutely. or whatever. The water cooler chat it's like, is huge. You, yeah. You miss that Absolutely. that interaction when you're remote and you have to be like super deliberate about yeah, that or have some sort of built-in like, you know, connection bot that's yeah. like, hey, meet with this person for 15 minutes and just like chat. Yeah. So I'm on the external presence UX team, but it's part of a larger commercial and services team, right? We we sell engines to Delta, KLM, these big airlines, and we service them. So we have like this group, which is just distinct and different from like the new make team. They have a team that builds like the engines and they have separate software. But anyway, our CNS, we call it CNS because another big thing, acronyms, <laughs> giant corporation, everything is an acronym. We actually have like a, a box note with just like every acronym <laughs> for people. because It's like, good luck getting anybody at GE to stop using acronyms. But anyway, the, the CNS UX team, that's a lot of acronyms right there on its own, isn't it? <laughs> uh, we have a, a coffee talk where we just schedule time and it's just call in and just, you know, BS for an hour. We do a thing every other week. We call it CNS games, where we just do like online games like Scribble.io or GeoGuessr, which is a really cool game. If you never play that one, you like, it drops you street view, Google street view somewhere in the world. And you have to guess where it is based on the clues around you. It's really cool. So we do stuff like that, you know, and uh, cool. it's just a way to, to build, you know, that camaraderie, which you would get if you were able to just go to lunch and hang out and BS for an hour. But kind of tries to supplement that. I think that's really important. So, you know, as I said, like a lot of companies might not be big companies might be trying to get people to go back. But if they aren't, I think that's really important, especially if you want to move up, you know, and and the other thing, too, again, just like if getting the seat at the table, you got to ask, you know, if there's a team that's like you got 100 people on your UX team or something and they have one opening for something. If you don't ask or tell somebody that you're interested in this thing, they're never going to they're never, you, you might never get it. So the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yeah. So I, think, I think that's another thing in these big corporations. If you want to tr- do try, want to try to move up is it, just to make sure people know that you're interested. Yeah. One thing I realized when I was in corporate and you can tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong or off on this, but I found that a lot of times people were very yes. willing to let you do stuff. If yes. you like offered to take things off their plate, if you wanted to either have a little bit more influence or if you wanted to yes. move something further at a little different pace that was typically in someone else's court, if you want to go and do, typically people are very open and willing mm-hmm. to letting you take some things off their plate. I was going to mention this about as a benefit of working these big companies is that if, if a role doesn't exist, you can make one for yourself, right? Or you can work with the, the right people to make that role for you. So, you know, I, I think that's something that goes along with exactly what you're saying. If you start to pull this off their plate and be like, you know, this, this is probably a separate role altogether that some, we should maybe try to think about creating for this. And maybe that turns into a new role for you. Right. So whatever it is, if you start to take some of that stuff off people's plate and they realize like, oh, you know what? This was too much for one person. This is probably something second version, or we need to open up another role and you can like, get into that way. So, you know, I think the opportunity in those larger companies is there. You just have to know how to how to get it. You know, we talk about this like on our show, but like we have a whole episode, we talk about this, but like playing the game, it's like a game, 
You know, you just have to know the right players and you, you know, not to say it's just like a bad thing yeah. to manipulate people in any kind of negative way, but you have to know who the people are. You know, it's funny in corporate America, at least at GE, people talk about, they talk about running plays and we have a playbook and, you know, this is our play. So they're already using that analogy. Like, why are we not using it? Like, it's a game. If you're running plays, it's a game. So who are the players? Who's my opponent? And, you know, friendly <laughs> opponent, obviously, not like on the battlefield, but I'm like, you know, the, the sports ball arena. Who are my opponents and, and how do I need to like, you know, right. maneuver them or whatever? Being really strategic in how you're thinking about what your next move is and where you want to go. And does this thing I'm doing today help me in my career? So you just mentioned this, something which is something I think people should think about. But if someone's looking for you to take stuff off their plate, you should be asking yourself, is this benefiting me in some way? Like, am I gaining new experiences out of this I wouldn't get otherwise? Or am I just being, you know, like stepped on, right? Because that could happen. Because there are people, <laughs> yes. a lot of those, like a lot of companies, totally. a lot of different totally. personalities. You're going to have a lot of these alpha type people that just want to, they want to like be in charge and they want to throw their weight around. So it's like, you know, like I'm happy to help you, but it needs to, it needs to benefit me in some way. And not to be selfish about it, maybe you help once because they're they're struggling or something. But if it's a constant right. thing over and over, you're like, I'm just being used. You know, those are the kind of things you should be watching for. And that kind of thing can happen in a small company too. Yep. So that's not like a large company problem, just to clarify. Oh, yeah. That, that certainly is something that could happen at any size company. No, yeah. I think there's like <laughs> this concept mm -hmm. of like opening your third eye in terms of like, understanding hierarchy and politics and, and what I'm, mm -hmm. and it's probably a little more pronounced at like bigger organizations, but it's like, is this person yeah. like acting in my best interest? Are they just trying to like manipulate me? What type of like yeah. stature yeah. do they have? That idea of like understanding the players, it's, it, you know, we talked about the politics and, and things like you understand who somebody is and who are their allies. Like that person always listens to this person. There's actually a really great book. I recommend to everybody. Articulating Design Decisions by Tom Griever. This dude is, is wonderful. If you haven't read that book, please go read that book. It's like one of the best UX books I've, I've ever read. And I think this applies even to just people outside of UX. But being able to, to like sell your ideas and your decisions and why you did a thing you did, it involves like understanding the people you're presenting to and your audience and who, what are their motivations and their desires and their pain points and everything else. As UX designers, we talk a lot about empathy, but we, we rarely think about empathy for our team you know, and empathy for the people we work with. So, you know, when you're trying to sell your idea or, or any of the stuff we're talking about today, sell a process, get your foot in the door, get your seat at the table, network, whatever, you have to understand who you're talking to and who their allies are, who their enemies are, because they're probably going to have people they don't agree with or people they butt heads with all the time at work. So, you know, understanding that and building consensus and stuff to, to get your ideas moving forward, is something that I think, again, this goes back to that patience. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. This is something that happens overnight. But it all goes back again to that idea, like playing the game and understanding who the people are and and all that stuff. You know, watch the tapes like you watch your opponent's tapes, you know. Yeah. It's like they do in football. I'm talking as if I know anything about sports, which I don't. But that idea of like understanding your opponents and stuff, <laughs> I think it's, it's really important. Well, totally. And I think it, it even goes into the fact of like, you might have the right design decision or the right research to back up your workflow or your proposal. Yeah, but it's dude. not, it's not only yeah. what is said oh, or what is presented, but yep. it's how it's yep. presented. And like, even who, like something that I present might not be as well accepted as someone else yeah. who presents yeah. it. I often use this quote. I, I love this. It's like one of my favorite quote, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry was a French author, wrote a book. There's a quote in this book about building a ship, building a boat. And it says, if you want to build a boat, 
you don't find a bunch of people, you don't hand out hammers and stuff and bark out a bunch of orders. If you want to build a boat, you find a bunch of people and you make them long for the immensity of the sea. It's like one of my, it's like just a beautiful quote because it's exactly wow. what I think UX teams have to do. We have to inspire often people who aren't interested in helping users, making their day better, improving the experience for our users. And when we're in a large corporation, those functional people often are completely oblivious to that fact. And again, assume good intent. It's not like they hate users and they think users are stupid. It's that they have a job to do. They might be held accountable yeah. to push something out to production in a quarter. And if whatever their budget is there and if they don't finish it, they won't get the budget next year, blah, 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 whatever it is. There's like, again, it goes back to understanding those motivations, but how do you inspire them? You know, we talked about this, all these meetings. I might have 30 minutes to capture an executive's attention, right? I have to do that in 30 minutes. And if I can't inspire them to want to build better software, it doesn't matter how good that design is on paper, right? Because I'm never going to get it done. You know, same with the with the engineering team. We want right. an engineering team to design the things or build the things that we design. And a lot of times in enterprise, they don't, you know, pixels are off, paddings, font size are all over the place. You're like, this is not at all what I sent you. What are you doing? You know, you have to make them understand why it's important. You know, it's not like you're just shipping a feature. You're shipping a feature for a reason and it's the same right. problem. And if you don't do the thing we designed, you're not actually solving the problem. So what was the point? You know, so, so that, that kind of thing, like telling a story and, and inspiring people in, in a totally. relatively short amount of time, especially if you're remote, um, I think is just like a huge skill set for a UX designer in a large company like that. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously you've climbed the ranks there quite a bit. Maybe you could give us a little insight as to like how you climb the ranks, maybe things yeah, that you've yeah, learned well, along the way. Or things you would have done differently. Absolutely. So I think that one of the main differences between working internally in a large company or even a small company and an outside agency is, you know, you have to prove that you know what you're talking about and you are, you understand the business. An outside agency, you're assumed to be the expert, right? We hired you because you won awards or you've done great work for other companies and blah, 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 whatever. So when you're internally, you have to prove yourself. It's weird. You work for the company and we're on the same team, but like, you don't trust me because you don't know my value. And so you don't have that credibility right out of the box. Just having UX designer in your title is meaningless to someone who doesn't understand what UX designer is supposed to do. Right. So right. I think the, the number one thing is understanding business value and being able to speak the business's language. Right. So I'll give you an example. G Aviation, we talk about lean. Right. And when you think about lean, it's all about manufacturing, right? Toyota invented this system. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but Toyota invented a way to like reduce waste and cu cut cost when it comes, but keeping quality very high yep. when it comes to manufacturing. Right. And so if you think about that, it makes a lot of sense. If, if we're, if we can't ship engines to customers, it doesn't matter what software we build. You know, if they don't have the engine, they can't use the software to manage it. So the lean right. thing is really important, right? So when we are as designers, it's really important for us to use that language and understand how it works in the design community, right? So if we think about Kaizen event, right? like uh, lean is a lot of these Japanese word, going to Gemba just means research. It means observational research, ethnographic research. That's Gemba. Kaizen, design thinking. All these things are, they translate to what we do. We have to show that we bring value in those scenarios, right? So if you're going to Gemba, you have to understand as a UX research team, we can go in and we can help do these things and we can ask questions in a way that aren't leading questions that get us the answers we want. We're getting honest answers and honest feedback. And when we're doing Kaizen events, we're, we're understanding, you know, we can take our, our design thinking method and, 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 and apply that there. Very Kaizen event, very, you know, very similar, not exactly the same, but very similar to a design sprint, 
right? You aren't coming up with solutions in that meeting, but that first few days are very much like a design sprint. So being able to speak the language and understanding money and the value that the company or the value that you would bring and, and be able to show that if we were to do this, we would, you know, for instance, some of the software we were working on before with the Shopfloor team, we could say, look, if you let us go and do this research, we can identify waste right? Lean, using the lean language, we can identify waste. We can reduce this thing, this process, this paper process is taking you three hours. Nice. We've developed a method that will save 10 or take 10 minutes to do the same thing, right? So I've just cut two hours every single day for this person. And now look at how much value that's bringing back. That person can do, 10, you know, I'm not good at math. What is that? 10, 300 divided by 10 times something, how many percentage oh, yeah. <laughs> increases that, but you can do more work, right? So, you know, we've got a problem with turnaround time. Look, this is going to decrease the turnaround time overall and allow us to get more engines through the shop. So being able to show that it's not just about creating pretty pictures, you know, that's important. That's fine. But like understanding the value, I think that's like the number one thing. Again, the networking piece, being able to talk to people, 30 minutes on somebody's, Hey, let's have a coffee chat. We're going to be working together. It'd be really important for us to kind of get to know each other. This is an example, tying it back. What I, I do now, I work on that external presence team. And so my job is to go out and talk to a bunch of customers, Southwest, KLM, all these big airlines, Delta, stuff like that. But we have a very structured way that we're supposed to communicate with customers. So I have to go through the, what was called the customer team. So there's a customer service manager for each of these teams. And so I have to go through them. So what do I do? I go and I find them and I, I schedule 30 minutes and we talk, you know? So I just recently did a trip to Southwest and went down to Dallas and we talked to them for a week and I had to go through the uh, Dan, the customer service manager. And I just set up 30 minutes and we talked about, he's got a farm in Lebanon, which is in Ohio. He's got a farm and he like, he grew up on a farm. He has all this stuff and he grows vegetables. He has chickens and goats and stuff. So like, you know, I know him now. And like, when I need something from him, isn't in a selfish way, but I'm more likely to get what right. I need from Southwest because I have a good relationship with that person. So that's the kind of stuff that I think is, if you want to get anything done, you got to know who to talk to and that networking piece totally. is really important. And then sell yourself. I think be patient, you know, and then the, the hardest part is assuming positive intent. <laughs> when people are not giving you what you want, don't assume they're jerks. Don't assume they are being stubborn for because they hate UX or don't get <laughs> right. UX. Help them. Like, Explain the value and all those things. I think that's really important. It's very hard to do that though. Assume positive intent. But I think that's just like a critical thing. And that's probably good for anybody, not just big companies. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we can, yeah, in our own minds, create a villain out of someone and keep building on it. Mm -hmm. Let our minds run wild and assume all of these things and all these intents yeah. and all these reasons when really it's probably, you know, they just woke up late or yeah. they've been having a tough exactly. week or it just exactly. slipped their mind, you know, just for your team. I mean, yeah, it's huge. Check out Tom's book. It's a good book. Talks all about that. Yeah. We'll link that up in the show notes for sure. Lots of great advice. I feel like you've kind of, you know, given us a peek behind the curtain at the inner workings of how corporate America works and some of the benefits of, you know, working on large scale enterprise software, Jeremy. So really appreciate everything you shared with us. Wanted to give you an opportunity for any, any final parting words of wisdom. Yeah. I think um big thing for me is just empathy for your team, understanding that like creating really awesome designs is not the only thing that we do as UX designers and being able to sell our ideas and, and get people to come along with us. You know, it's, it's a, it's a complicated thing. There's a lot of people, a lot of moving parts. We're never doing it on our own. So making sure that we're always bringing people along with us. I think that's really important. That's awesome. So again, appreciate the time. This has been great. So much information and wisdom that's been shared. Jeremy, yeah, thank you course. again for coming on. This has been great and we'll talk soon. That's good. Thank you so much for having me, man. This is awesome. I love it.
Thanks so much for hanging out with us today on the Product Design Podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure and go follow our guests. Let them know they did a great job and you learned a lot. Um, More to come in the following weeks as we bring on new guests. Please hit that subscribe button so that you will get these podcasts uh, and learn a ton about the product design community. Excited to see you next time. Thanks.